Good morning. Aren't you glad the rain stopped before you came to church? Yeah? It's awesome. I mean, none of us get to say we're as committed as 830, but hey, we're here, right? It's good stuff. Uh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's good to see you. Hey, if, uh, if you're new to Crosspoint, before we dive in, let me just say uh, another quick welcome. Honored to have you in the house today. Uh, but secondly, I want to invite you to come have dinner with me this upcoming Thursday night. Uh, on Thursday, February 8th, 630, in this room, we're having our next newcomer dinner. And this is just a chance for you as someone new to start figuring out who we are as a church, uh, what we do, how we do it, and most importantly, how you can be a part of all that God is doing here, all right? Uh, the food is free, and it's really, really good. Uh, we have free child care in case you need that. We just need to know you're coming, okay? And so if you want to come join me for dinner, you can sign up at the connection desk on your way out in the lobby. You can take care of it online at crosspointcity.com newcomer, or you can even use the app and sign up there, all right? Awesome. Well, hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to head to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Uh, for those of you who are new or newer, we've been in a series in the book of Mark as a church for about a year now. And after today, we have three weeks left. But I just want you to know you're here at a really great time. I've been saying this over the past few weeks, but uh, as we get into this section of the book of Mark, we're really talking about the truths that make Christianity what it, what it is. Uh, this stuff that we're talking about today and in the coming weeks and even over the last couple of weeks, I mean, it makes up the essential beliefs of, of our Christian faith. And so I, I would just say to you, too, if you're here, not just as a new person, but maybe as a skeptic, as someone trying to figure out what this is all about, uh, you're here, again, at a really, really great time, all right? Uh, do whatever it takes to be here over the next few weeks because you don't want to miss where we're going, all right? But Mark 15 is where we're going to be today. Uh, hey, did any of you guys remember back in the mid-2000s, that guy who traded a red paperclip for a house? Do you remember this story? Okay, some of you do. Some of you are looking at me like my wife looked at me when I asked her about this. I, I don't know what you're talking about, so I'll, I'll tell you the story quickly. There was a guy named Kyle McDonald who at the time was a Canadian blogger. And he got the idea for this from some game called Bigger Better. The process took about a year, and it included 14 trades. And I'll give you the rundown on how it worked. Uh, he traded a red paper clip for a fish-shaped pin, the pin for a homemade doorknob, the doorknob for a camping stove, the camping stove for a generator, the generator for an instant party kit, which included an empty keg and a neon Budweiser sign, which I... Kind of feel like that deserves a good old Bartow, Bartow County yes, sir. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, he, traded, he traded that party kit for a snowmobile, the snowmobile for a trip to Yak, British Columbia, the trip for a box truck, the box truck for a music recording contract. He, he traded the recording contract for a year's worth of free rent in Phoenix, Arizona. He traded the rent for an afternoon with Alice Cooper. Do you remember that guy, that old rocker dude? Interesting. Um, traded the afternoon with Alice Cooper for a motorized Kiss snow globe, which is really weird. Somebody really likes their snow globes. Uh, the snow globe for a speaking role in a movie. And then finally, he traded the movie role for a two-story farmhouse in Canada. Now, listen, I don't know if you're like me in this, but I'm such a skeptic by nature that without proof and documentation that he actually pulled that off, there's no way I would believe that story. I mean, come on, trading a paperclip for a house, that is a ridiculous exchange, agreed? Yet, listen, it pales in comparison 
to the ridiculous exchange we're about to see in our passage for today. Uh, Mark describes for us an exchange so ludicrous, so absurd, so outrageous that it's almost impossible to believe. Yet we need to believe it because this exchange holds a very deep and personal meaning for every single one of us in the room. And that meaning should become clear as we work our way through the text. All right, so let's dive in. Mark 15, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Here's what Mark tells us. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you've said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. We'll stop there and talk for a few minutes. Uh, In our passage for today, Jesus is still on trial. If you weren't here last week, we started talking about the trial of Jesus, and we learned that his trial took part in two stages. There was a religious trial and then a civil trial. And the reason for the two trials was really simple. The religious leaders of his day who wanted him dead These were the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They made up what was known as the Sanhedrin or the Jewish high court. They had no power to exercise capital punishment. Only the Romans who ruled in Israel at this time could execute prisoners. And so if this religious court thought someone had committed a crime, they deserved the death penalty, they would hold a religious trial according to Jewish law to determine guilt. And if they found that prisoner guilty, they would then turn them over to the Romans for a secondary trial, and the Romans would either uphold or deny the verdict. And so what we see playing out in our passage is this. Uh, It's the morning after the religious trial. Jesus' first trial took place late on a Thursday night. Well, it's early the next day, early Friday morning, and the religious court is back together, and they hand down the final verdict. This brother is guilty of blasphemy. He has slandered God and offended God by claiming to be God. And so they bind him and they take him away and they hand him over to the Romans. Well, Mark tells us that they deliver him over to one specific man. His name was Pilate. Uh, Pilate was a Roman governor who ruled in Judea at the time of Jesus. And we know from history he was a pretty harsh dude. Uh, Wasn't particularly fond of the Jewish people he ruled over. But at the same time, he did his best to keep them happy. Didn't want to upset them because if they got upset, they might complain to his bosses. He might lose his job. And so at certain times of the year, like Passover, during the big feast, during the big celebrations, uh, Pilate would actually travel into the city of Jerusalem. He would leave his home in Caesarea, which was up by the Mediterranean Sea. And he would do it, number one, just to make an appearance. I need these people to feel like I'm with them, you know. Um, But secondly, there were so many people in the city at this time. I mean, for Passover, hundreds of thousands of Jewish people would flood into Jerusalem for this celebration. Well, he wanted to be close by to help maintain order and peace. Right? If something went wrong, problems arose, Pilate wanted to be close enough where he could address the situation personally. And so I just want you to imagine this. Here's Jesus standing before this Roman governor, and Pilate asks the question, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, it becomes very obvious from that question that the religious leaders had brought charges against Jesus before this moment. But here's what's interesting. They weren't charges of blasphemy. These religious leaders didn't run to Pilate and go, hey, we got a guy claiming to be God here. Uh, The Romans could have cared less about blasphemy. 
A guy claiming to be God was not a punishable crime in their book. And so the chief priests knew if we're really going to convince Pilate to kill Jesus, we've got to do better than that. And so instead of bringing blasphemy charges, they bring charges of treason against him. You see, they know that Pilate would have to take charges of treason seriously if, in fact, he would stay loyal to Rome and loyal to the emperor. And in the Gospel of Luke, we find the specifics on those charges. Look, and they began to accuse Jesus, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is a Christ, a king. And so there were three specific charges. This this group of religious leaders comes to Pilate and says, Hey, first off, we need you to know Jesus is a traitor. He's an enemy of Rome, uh, an insurrectionist, a revolutionary, trying to mislead our people. Number two, he's telling people not to pay their taxes to Caesar, which is ridiculous. If you've been here for this series, you know, several weeks ago, we talked about a passage where Jesus was asked by the religious leaders, should we pay our taxes to Caesar? And what did Jesus say? If you know the story, he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God. So this is a bogus charge. Uh, And then finally, Pilate, he's running around telling people that he's some type of king. Now, you need to know, these were serious charges. And under Roman law, if these charges were true, Jesus absolutely deserved to die. Hence the question, are you the king of the Jews? And I love Jesus' answer. He looks back at this politician and he says, you've said so. Those are your words. I mean, I didn't say it. You just said it. Now, it's hard when you read this account in the Gospel of Mark to fully understand what Jesus meant by that. But when you read the story in the Gospel of John, it becomes very clear what he meant. He's basically saying to Pilate in this moment, this very thing. uh, Yes, I am, but not in the way you're thinking. Pilate, I, I am a king for sure, but you need to know my kingdom is not of this world. And so our concepts of kingship differ vastly from one another. Well, upon hearing this, the chief priests, they get really upset. They go on the attack. Uh, Mark tells us they start bringing all these other charges against Jesus. We're not sure what charges they made outside of what Luke recorded, but they're, they're accusing him of all these different things to the point where Pilate finally stops and goes, hey, bro, are you going to respond? Like, aren't you going to defend yourself? Do you hear what they're saying, how they're attacking you? And Jesus, just like he did during his religious trial, just stands there in silence with his mouth shut. In this moment, he is fulfilling, yet again, Isaiah 53, 7, this great prophecy about the suffering Savior, the Messiah of the world. God would one day send for his people. He would be afflicted. He'd be oppressed. Yet he would not open his mouth. Well, I love this. You know, this silence during the religious trial, it frustrated Caiaphas, the high priest, Uh, In the civil trial, it left Pilate in awe of Jesus. I mean, him keeping his mouth shut, which was a very rare thing in a trial like this, it left Pilate in amazement. And it seemed to confirm for him that Jesus was in no way guilty. And so what we find in the next verses is, is Pilate actually attempting to set Jesus free. And it's here that we find this very ludicrous exchange that I mentioned earlier taking place. Go back to the text. We'll keep reading verse 6. We'll pick it back up. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. 
But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. Barabbas, And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So every year during the Passover feast, it was customary for Pilate, this Roman governor, to release a Jewish prisoner to the people as a sign of goodwill. Which, I don't know about you, is really strange to me when I think about that, you know. It's like, hey, Jewish people, I love you and I care about you. Have your best interest in mind. Here's a criminal. (laughs) You know, it's like getting underwear for Christmas. Just like way worse, you know. It's terrible. Well, Well, Pilate saw this as his opportunity. Hey, this is really good timing. I have Jesus here. Uh, They want me to release a guy. And so this is my chance to get Jesus off the hook. But his plan backfires. He asks the question, uh, who do you want me to release, right? And, And it's interesting. Before the crowd answers, Mark tells us that there was this rebel, uh, this guy that, that was in prison named Barabbas. We just read a little bit about him. We'll talk about him in just a moment. Um, his name in Aramaic, by the way, means son of the father. I find that really interesting, especially in light of what we're getting ready to see take place in the passage. But just keep that in mind as we work through it. Uh, this rebel, Barabbas, we know a few things about him. Uh, Mark tells us he was an insurrectionist. So he was a freedom fighter who opposed Rome. It's also believed by some historians that he was part of the same insurrectionist group that the two thieves belonged to who were crucified alongside Jesus Christ. We also know from this account that he was a murderer, had killed people. And then in the Gospel of John, John 18, 40, we also find that Barabbas was a robber. And when you study that word robber in the Greek language of the New Testament, you start to discover he wasn't like a petty thief. This was not a guy stealing bubble gum from candy shops, okay? This was a guy who took what he wanted by violent force. And so Mark, after he tells us about Barabbas, he shifts his attention back to the trial. And he points out that there's this crowd that's there now. A sizable crowd had apparently gathered in this palace forum where Jesus' trial was taking place. And they start asking Pilate to do that thing for them that he always did did every year. Hey, Pilate, you know when you release a prisoner for us? That customary thing you do, we want you to do that now. And this is when he asks the question, um, who do you want me to release, the king of the Jews? I'm going to have Jesus here. I could give him over to you. And here's what's crazy. Um, This was really spiteful on his part. You see, I, I told you earlier he wasn't too fond of the Jews. He really disliked the chief priests, these scribes, the elders, the religious leaders who led these people. Uh, He knows Jesus isn't guilty of any crime, and he also knows that the leaders who turned him over didn't turn him over because they were loyal to him or to Rome. They turned him over because they were jealous. They were envious of Jesus. They hated him because of his popularity with the people and for disrupting and tearing down all their man-made religious systems. And so Pilate sees this as a great opportunity to release the very man those guys hate. Maybe if I do this, they'll know how much I dislike him, how I really feel about him. But as we saw in the text, the religious leaders went out. I mean, think about this with me. Mark says they begin to stir up the crowd, and they convince the crowd to pick Barabbas. Can you imagine this? Think about the differences in these two men. I mean, what has Jesus done up to this point in the book of Mark? He's healed people. 
He's raised the dead. He's made the blind to see again, the lame to walk again. He's restored lepers. He's calmed storms. He's walked on water. He's fed crowds supernaturally and miraculously. He is taught with an authority never seen or heard. And here he is standing next to this violent, murderous criminal. And Pilate asks the crowd, who do you want? And they say, give us Barabbas. We want Barabbas. I I truly believe that this moment in the story demonstrates the total depravity of the human heart. So in other words, it puts in perspective verses like this, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It makes sense of passages like Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they've become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of vipers is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes." You see, it's passages like these, among others in the scriptures, that remind us and teach us that our sinful nature, when left to ourselves, it causes us to choose the deep, the uh, the dark, evil, sinful things of this world, things that have never done anything for us and never will, than to choose God himself. And this story, it it illustrates that truth in a very, very tragic way. Pilate, we want the murderer. We want the traitor. We want the violent criminal. We'd rather have him than the guy who heals, loves, and saves. Now, I can only imagine how dumbfounded Pilate must have felt in this moment. I mean, put yourself in his shoes, if you would. I mean, surely he's expecting they're going to pick Jesus, right? I mean, who wants a guy who's killed people? who's used force to to steal from people. Nobody wants that guy. And so he he just asks the question, well, well, what do you want me to do with him? Like, what should I do with the guy that that you call the king of the Jews? And they respond, crucify him. We want you to kill that man in the most torturous, brutal way imaginable. And Pilate, who's been trying to get Jesus off the hook this entire time, um, for some reasons that are, are very selfish on his part, like one of those being the fact that his wife, you can find this story in Matthew 27, his wife had a dream about Jesus. And in this dream, I believe God very clearly showed her that Jesus was an innocent man. And she sends word to Pilate during Jesus' trial through some messengers, have nothing to do with this righteous man. And so I think Pilate's a little scared. Oh my gosh, if I mess this guy up, uh, God might come after me. And so he's trying to get Jesus off the hook. And he asks the question, why? Why should I crucify him? What's he guilty of? What evil has he done? But the crowd shouts all the more. We could care less, just kill him, crucify him. And this is where we see the very ludicrous exchange that I've been mentioning take place. Uh, Mark says, wishing to satisfy the crowd. Um, And so at this point, Pilate, he just says, you know what, it's better that I preserve my job security, it's better that I keep these people happy, and if killing this one guy gets that accomplished, I guess I'll do it. He releases Barabbas to the crowd, and he turns Jesus over, and he's scourged. Uh, Scourging was a very brutal process that always took place before crucifixion. During this process, a prisoner was stripped completely naked of all their clothes. 
Uh, Their hands were tied above their head to a wooden post so that their back was nice and stretched out. And then Roman soldiers would take turns beating those prisoners mercilessly. They used a whip-like instrument that had pieces of sharp bone and metal embedded in the leather straps that they were being beat with. I just need you to know during this process, Jesus would have literally had chunks of flesh torn from his body down to the bone and internal organs. By the time it was done, his back would have been nothing more than loose, bloodied ribbons of flesh hanging from his body. This was so brutal that oftentimes prisoners died during the scourging process, didn't even make it to crucifixion. But Mark tells us that Jesus, is survived, Jesus survives and he's on his way to the cross. My friends, this is the exchange. This is it. Jesus for Barabbas, the perfect, sinless son of God for a violent, murderous criminal. And please hear me, as absurd as that exchange might seem, It illustrates beautifully what we as Christians call the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's news declaring this, that the innocent has been exchanged for the guilty so the guilty can be set free. Listen, if you've shown up today as a person who's walked in the door wondering what all this is about. If you're new to church, you're new to the Bible, new to this conversation, and you go, okay, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, I need you to know, first and foremost, being a Christian has nothing to do with you working hard to make yourself a good person. Christianity is not about you reaching a certain level of morality so that the God of the universe would love you and accept you. Christianity, please hear me, is about believing and living in light of good news. And that good news, again, is this, that Jesus Christ, the innocent, has been exchanged for we the guilty so that we the guilty can be set free. Amen? Listen, for the rest of our time together, all I want to do is spend our time unpacking this. What does this mean? What does it mean for us? What are all the implications of this good news that we call the gospel? And to do that, I want to move us away from the book of Mark for a few minutes, and I want to take us to the book of Ephesians, all right? So if your Bibles are still open, go there. It's about eight books to the right. If you'll just flip right in your Bible, you'll find it. If you've already closed your Bibles, open them back up. Uh, I want you to see this in your Bible in front of you. So go to Ephesians chapter 2 with me. In the passage, we're going to look at a guy named Paul who was an apostle, uh, a leader in the early church, one of the greatest missionaries that's ever lived. He's writing to a church in Ephesus. And as he writes, and we'll see this in a moment, Uh, He points out for us that this exchange Jesus performed on behalf of Barabbas, it is in fact the same exact exchange he performed for every single one of us in the room today. And I'll show you what I mean. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We'll stop there and talk for a moment. In these first three verses, Paul is contradicting this cultural idea that you and I are basically good people. You hear people suggest that? Well, I think as human beings, we are inherently good. Paul's going, no, we're not. We're not good people at all. Like, we're really bad people by nature, and we're not just bad people. We are dead people. 
You see, Paul's reminding us that apart from Christ, every single one of us in the room spiritually is just like Barabbas. We are spiritual rebels, enemies of God. Instead of loving him, honoring him, following him, and obeying him, our sinful nature causes us to oppose him, and we just kind of follow the ways of the world. We do what we want. We live according to our own selfish desires. Anything that pleases us, anything that honors us, that's what we pursue. And as a result, like Barabbas, we are all on death row just in a spiritual sense. And the really bad news is you and I can't do anything to change that. We're helpless to change our spiritual condition, our spiritual position. I mean, think about Barabbas again. It would have been ridiculous for him to think that he could have somehow set himself free from physical bondage, right? Um, Maybe if I behave, they'll let me off the hook. Maybe if I'm a really good criminal, the Romans will overlook all my violent, murderous offenses and let me go free. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Can I tell you? In the same way, it is just as ridiculous for you to think you can set yourself free from spiritual bondage. Maybe if I'm a good person, God will overlook all my offenses. Maybe if I go to church enough and follow all the right rules and pursue morality, you know, I'll stop drinking and smoking and watch rated R movies and all that good. Maybe God will let go of all those things I've done to offend him. Please hear me. It does not work that way. The only way to freedom for Barabbas was through mercy. And Paul reminds us that the same is true for us spiritually. Look at verse 4. He goes on and he says, but God, but God, if you write in your Bibles, please underline those words, circle them, highlight them, just do whatever it takes to, to get them off the page in your face. Two of the most beautiful words in the Bible. When you were spiritually dead, trapped in sin, living your own life, opposing God. Not but you, but God. God came after you. God pursued you. God loved you enough to do what we're about to see in the text. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And you've been raised up with him and 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 God seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And he did it so that in the coming ages, he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Listen, it is here that Paul points us to this beautiful exchange Jesus performed on our behalf. Out of his great love for us out of his reckless love for us as we've been seeing. This crazy love that just doesn't seem to make any logical sense. Jesus did for us what he did for Barabbas. 2,000 years ago at the cross, he showed us both mercy and grace. Mercy meaning you don't receive what you deserve. Grace meaning you receive a whole bunch of stuff that you don't deserve. And when you think about Barabbas, this starts to really become clear how mercy and grace work together. Think about it. Barabbas was a rebel. He was guilty, and he deserved to die. Yet Jesus, the innocent, took his place so that Barabbas could be set free. That's mercy. Uh, Barabbas didn't receive what he deserved, death. And then Barabbas received something he didn't deserve. That's grace. He received freedom. Again, that's what Jesus has done for us. In mercy, he took our place. He withheld from us the punishment we deserved. 
and then he took every bit of punishment we did deserve from God so that we could go free and receive from God a whole bunch of stuff we don't deserve. And Paul highlights some of that stuff for us right here in the passage. I love this. Paul reminds us we received a new position in Jesus Christ. We've been seated with him in heavenly places. That we receive new life. God has made us alive together with Jesus Christ. We've received a new identity. No longer does God see us as sinful people, spiritually dead people. He sees us as sons and daughters in his family. We've received eternal life from Jesus Christ. And can we just think about this? I know, gosh, man. We come to church and we hear this stuff all the time. And it just becomes so familiar. Oh, yeah, eternal life. Hooray. But can we just think about it? It's coming a day. As a follower of Jesus, you're going to close your eyes in death. And the next time you open them, you're going to be standing before your Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And you didn't do anything for that. You didn't deserve it. You've done nothing to earn it. Jesus Christ did that for you. That's the hope you have. And you know what's even crazier? When you get there, Paul says for the rest of eternity, God's just going to keep pouring out his riches on you. He's going to keep showing you kindness given you grace that only belongs to you because of Jesus Christ. And so in light of all that, the only question left to answer is, how in the world do we respond to that? I mean, that's really good news, amen? So how do we respond? Well, the answer is really simple. Number one, if you showed up today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you start by putting your faith in him. You trust him as the one who exchanged his life for you so that you could be set free from sin, death, and hell forever. I just want to say to you, if, if you don't know Christ, the God of the universe loves you deeply. I hope you've recognized that today. And it really doesn't matter how jacked up you think your life is, what kind of baggage you drug in the door. If Jesus would exchange his life for Barabbas, you can believe he would exchange his life for you. And so that's where it starts. You put your faith in him as the one who gave himself up in your place. But then secondly, I would say, if you know Jesus, how do you respond? Well, you do what Paul says to do. You boast in Jesus Christ alone. But he's done for you what you could never do for yourself. And I thought I would just speak for a moment to those of us in the room um, who may be showing up today. And I, I just tell you, this was not scripted. I just felt as I was driving in this morning and praying over our time together that God was just impressing upon me, James, some folks need to hear this, so just go there. So I'm going to go here. I realize some of us in the room today have grown up in church, and we've done this kind of thing our entire lives, and like the only four-letter word we've ever said is darn, you know, like we're pretty clean people. And when we come to church and hear messages like this, and we look at a Barabbas, we go, oh, great story. I'm nowhere near as bad as that guy careful I don't care how good you think you are you're just like that guy spiritually listen to me Barabbas was an enemy of Rome the Bible teaches that you have lived as an enemy of the living God this guy was a violent murderous criminal who took what he wanted by force just because of your sin nature by, by living life your way at times guess what you've done You've taken hold of your life and stolen it away from God by force. You're not your own. You belong to him. Oh, well, James, at least I've never killed anybody. You sure? Because in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says if you've ever harbored anger or bitterness toward another person in your heart, you are guilty of murder. I want you to feel the weight of this today. 
none of us are good people. Spiritually, we're like the man we find in our passage. Yet in spite of who we are and what we've done, out of his great love for us, Jesus exchanged himself to set us free. And in response to that, here's what I want to say to you. If you know him, if you know him, man, hang up nominal cultural Christianity. I kind of live my life each day. I got my job and my family and my hobbies, and there's this Christianity thing I do over here. That's how I compartmentalize my life. Stop doing that and let Jesus consume every part of who you are. Don't just show up on the weekends and play church just because you need something to do. I'm going to go and check the box. I went and I served so that I could feel better about myself and gave a little money to just rid me of my guilt. Don't do that. I would even say to some of us, because Jesus Christ died to set you free from your sin and then put his Holy Spirit inside of your body who now empowers you to live in victory over that sin, I would say to some of you, Stop living in bondage to those things Christ has set you free from. Ultimately, the invitation is this. Give your life fully over to the one who gave his life for you. I know we need his help in doing that, so why don't we pray right now and ask for the help we need. Will you join me? As we begin to pray, I'm going to invite our prayer team to come and get in their places. And as they come, I want to speak First, to those of you who showed up today without a relationship with Jesus Christ. You're that person who walked in the door today and you are very much in the position that Barabbas found himself in. You are helpless. You are hopeless. You know nothing in your life is ever going to change unless somebody helps you to change it. comes to eternity, all that you see before you is death. You've never asked Jesus to save you from your sins. You've never put your faith in him as the one who exchanged his life for yours. If you need to do that today, if you need freedom, if you need new life, if you need eternal life, if you need your life to change completely, I want to invite you in this moment, wherever you're sitting, to pray and to say something like this to him in faith. Just tell him, Jesus, I need you. And I put my faith in you as the God who exchanged his life for me. I believe at the cross you poured out mercy and grace for me. You took my punishment that I deserve for my sin. And you did it so that I could be set free. And Jesus, I also believe that that you rose from the dead three days later so that I could be set free forever, for all of eternity, from sin, death, and hell. And so, Jesus, I'm asking you today, in love and in grace, would you take hold of my life? Would you forgive me of all my sins, past, present, and future? Put your Holy Spirit inside of my body and change me into the person you've created me and saved me to be. Jesus, I say yes to a relationship with you. So now I want to ask you to do me a favor if you just prayed that with me or something like it. Wherever you're sitting, I want to ask you right now in this moment to simply acknowledge the fact that you made that decision by lifting a hand. James, that's me. If that's you, just throw your hand up real high. I want to put a gift in your hand right now in this moment. Our prayer team's going to come and give you a resource. And as soon as you put your hand, or as soon as you receive it, you can put your hand out. Thank you so much. Anybody else, James, that's me. 
put my faith in Jesus today. Just throw it up where we can see it. As soon as you get the resource, you can put your hand back down. Anybody else? Awesome. Father, I just want to thank you first and foremost for the folks in this room who just trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And I pray that right now in this moment, God, that they would begin to experience your presence, your love in life-altering ways. God, let them know that you're with them, that you're for them, that you love them deeply, that, that nothing will ever separate them from you. And God, I thank you for being a God who still saves today. Father, for the rest of us in this room who know you, would you overwhelm us with the truth of that reality, God? Captivate our hearts if they need to be captivated. Help us to stand in awe of Jesus again. I pray that your amazing grace would motivate us each and every day to live lives that honor you and make much of you. So God, we're just saying we need your help. We need your help. God, flood us with your Holy Spirit. Give us the power and faith and courage we need to live lives that put you on display. God, we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.